Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. Hi, thanks for tuning in. This week I chat with Simon Mannering, CEO and founder of the award-winning strategic and marketing consultancy, We First, based in Los Angeles. He's a New York Times best-selling author, one of the world's most awarded creatives, a global authority on harnessing the power of social media for good, and was just voted one of the top 50 keynote speakers in the world by Real Leaders magazine in the US. If you're an entrepreneur, a marketer, a business owner, or actually anyone who's trying to survive the changing business landscape, and in 2020, who isn't, then I recommend you have a listen to what Simon says. And probably his most impressive accomplishment, sadly missing from his resume, is dancing topless in a nightclub scene for a music video I directed back in the early 90s for a pop act, Euphoria. Clearly, I launched him to greatness. Please welcome to the blank canvas, Simon Mannering. Simon Mannering. Lee, how are you? (laughs) I'm well. Nice to see you, mate. I've been researching this this morning and thinking, what is it, 27, 29, 30, 32 years since we've probably seen each other? I think it's actually, yeah, it's pushing on 30 years since we've seen each other. 30 years! You were just a little young whippersnapper wet behind the ears with that irresistible grin on your face and I was out there hustling away or whatever it was. It's, uh, it's really good to reconnect. Thanks, mate. It's funny because as I went through it this morning, it's kind of like we've had parallel lives in some respects, isn't it? Yeah, I think, you know, we've all given it a go. You know, we've all just sort of, I think that's one of the great things about Aussies is that, you know, I've been lucky enough to work around the world and see lots of different types of people and we just show up. We give it a go and we see what happens. And I I really admire that about us, you know? Yeah, I think you're right, mate. Where you left me behind as you went out and wrote a New York Times bestselling book. Congratulations. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that was a that was an interesting chapter in my life that I did not plan. It just it, it, it came out of the blue and it changed the course of my life, to be quite honest. Yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. Well, let's go go back to the start. I I think I was trying to think of the first first time I saw you or met you. Was it on a job? I was directing a music video for a dance band called Euphoria. And we built a nightclub set in a studio in Redfern oh in Sydney. And I remember you and I don't know if she was your girlfriend yet or you wanted her to, to be your girlfriend, but I remember some, you know, sexy dancing in the nightclub. Yeah, you and- got to be careful, Lee. You're talking about my wife now. That's the same woman, 27 years married. And um, all I remember from that shoot, Lee, was... I think, yeah, Euphoria was the band and the lead singer, the girl, was wearing a chain mail dress and I was really concerned for a certain area of her body that might well come unstuck, caught in the chain mail. Or, you know, that's all I recall. Call me a young 20-year-old Australian bloke at the time, but I do recall that and um, the lovely lady that I was dancing with, Mona, has been my wife for 27 years. So there we go. Wow, incredible. And was she your girlfriend at the time or was that the moment where it all happened? I hope, judging by the way that we were dancing, if you're 
you know, story is true that we were boyfriend and girlfriend. Otherwise, I was just a horrible, lechy young man who should have been sent to his room. But uh, no, I think she was my girlfriend at the time. And, uh, you know, you show up and you do these things. And we had some great fun with you doing a video back in the day. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was great. Do you know, I don't know if you remember, but the title of the track was One in a Million. So do you think you might have whispered that, you know, into Mona's ears at the time? I was just kind of trying to indoctrinate her. I'm your one in a million because you're my one in a million. <laughs> I, you know, it worked out. It worked out. And uh, she's been a great companion through all of these travels and all the different versions of life we've been lucky enough to sort of explore. Yeah, incredible, mate. Well, it did go number one uh, on the, the ARIA charts. I don't know if you remember. I had no idea about that. Yeah, no yeah, idea. Yeah, it was the number one smash hit. So uh, clearly you, you, you danced to it at your wedding. I, um, I showed up, my hips showed up. I think that's what took it over the top, Lee. I think it was. And, or might have been Mona's hips or I don't know both. Who knows? It's a mystery. Well, congratulations. Two daughters and an incredible innings, 27 years. That's a, an amazing feat in, I guess, anyone's books, but particularly in the kind of business you've been in, the amount of travel and all the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, living in LA and Hollywood and all that sort of stuff, you know, I think that's about five wedding or five marriages, isn't it? I think something like that, or you just round it up or round it down. But no, I mean, I think one of the reasons we stayed together so long and we um, kind of kept ourselves young was when you constantly move countries, even though you're in the same relationship, you're still growing because you've got to find new friends, a new community, you've got to find your way, you've got to find a new job. So, you know, I went to Japan for a little bit and then I had a year in, in France and Paris and then I had, we both went and had um, four or five years in London and then we went across to the States and I've been out here in the States for 20 years, like four years in Portland and now another 16 or 17 in Los Angeles. So, but always visiting home and never, never losing sense of that connection to home and just how special, you know, Sydney and, and Australia is. You never lose sight of that. Yeah, that's wonderful, mate. So back at that time, were you, uh, I'm guessing you weren't dancing in clubs for a living at that time. So were you at uni or what else were you doing? I know you studied law. Just take us back to that time. Yeah, you know, I came out of, you know, Knox Grammar School and I went to Sydney Uni and did arts law and I um, I finished my honours year in fine arts and I, re I I wrote a thesis about a French sculptor called Auguste Rodin who's, who did The Thinker that a lot of people know and The Gates of Hell and some other famous works. And the thesis was well received and accepted into the, the bibliothèque over the Musée Rodin in Paris. And so I, I went over to Paris and I, I was over there for a year and I always, I thought I'd disappear. I, I had long hair, I had sideboards, you know, it was all pretty, it was all pretty silly. You know, those really tragic fantasies or self-identities you have when you're like in your early 20s, you're going to change the world or whatever. I had all of them. Um, and then I came back and I finished law school and... You know, things took a curious turn. I've always had a somewhat inappropriate sense of humor, which hopefully won't rear its ugly head too much today. But there was a part of me that always sort of, you know, wanted to look at things from a slightly different angle. And people came to me and said, listen, you just finished law school, but you should be a copywriter. And I thought they meant copy as in trademark and that sort of thing, you know, the legal side of it. But what they meant was advertising. So I sort of didn't about face much to my parents' concern and, and applied at the uh, award school, which is, you know, the school for young aspiring advertising folks in, in Sydney. And I turned up on the day before 
the judging for the year was done. So I had a funny reception. I kind of, I went in there and I said, I'd like to do the award course. And they said, well, great. You can apply next year. And I said, no, I'd really like to do the award course. And they said, maybe you didn't hear us. The award school is finished for the year. See all these big folders around here? That's people's portfolios. It's done. And I said, no, I'd really like to do the award school this year. And they told me in somewhat direct terms that this might be an appropriate time for you to go away. Anyway, in the end, what I did was there's a masterclass that follows the award school where those top students go in and they then do work in front of industry experts and they cull the class down to two or three people and, and so on and so on. And that's run by a wonderful gentleman named George Betzis. And I reached out to who he was. I had met him and, and said, I would really like to participate in the masterclass. And he said, great, the school is finished. But if you come back to me on Monday with all of the different briefs that everyone's done over this 12-week course, I might consider you letting you sit in on the class. So I didn't sleep for whatever it was, 42, 60 hours. And I did all the 12 different briefs that weekend and presented a portfolio to him on the Monday. And maybe out of pity or because he thought I was an absolute burko mad kind of guy, he said, sure, you can sit in on the class. And then I did the master class and uh, we had a brief each week and I did the brief and then they eventually included me in the class and got culled down to the final two. And I was one of the final two. And then we got placed and I got placed at Saatchi and Saatchi in Sydney. And that's where my career started. Wow, mate. What an inspiring story. That's unbelievable. For those that don't know, Saatchi and Saatchi, particularly back at that time, was the most prestigious, you know, creative global advertising agency to work with. So you just, you know, jumped in at the very top. That's incredible. Mate, um, George Betzis, what a legend. I had the great fortune of directing a stack of commercials for him back in the day. I had no idea until now that he's the chap that, um, you know, gave you that shot at the time. I mean, everyone in their life can look to various sort of like on a train track switches where they went one way or another. And George opened the door. He's always been a true gentleman and very gracious and a true mentor. And yeah, I wouldn't have really had a chance or led the career I've had if someone didn't give me a shot. And, and to this day, I really appreciate George and everything he did. Wow, it's incredible because I'd say literally the most high profile commercial I've directed in my career was from George. Um, it was the launch of the NRL, the National Rugby League competition back, I think, in uh, 98 after there'd been the war between the Super League and the Australian Rugby League. I did a bunch of the Super League ads for George and then when the two comps combined, they did like a 90-second on free-to-air TV launch commercial with John Howard and Kim Beasley, the, the, you know, the Prime Minister at the time, all the teams. And, um, you know, I was a young compared to the other guys up against, I think, Adrian Haywood and a few of the sort of legend directors of the business. And, um, yeah, George gave me a shot. So um, cheers to George if he's listening to this. Um, yeah, always give that next generation a shot. You just never know what it's going to lead to. Wow. So, mate, you're at Saatchi's in Sydney and um, how long were you there? And I guess how did you find, you know, you'd fast-track your spot in there. How did you cope with, the? I can imagine, the old guard and the the big drinking long lunch kind of era was kind of, I guess, still in full swing at that time. How did you cope being the young pup? And uh, certainly not everyone's as supportive as George. How'd you go there? 
you know, it was, I think it was a three month sort of post you get there. And, and I was working with a, a great guy, a really talented guy named Kozla Chitty. And he has since opened up his own agency and done extraordinarily well. But yeah, the culture was quite different. I just come out of law school. I was so out of my depth. I didn't know what I was doing. And I was just scrambling like anyone. You're trying to make it a go. I think I was about to get married at that time. I got married pretty young. And I was trying to think, how am I going to provide? You know, how am I going to kind of have a life? And I, I really didn't have a lot of answers. And so after the three-month stint there, I was actually hired at DDB Needham back then, DDB Needham. I think it's DDB now. And I worked there for a year. And, you know, again, it was just a lot of hassle and hustle to kind of get some feet underneath you. And as, as part of doing work for a lot of different clients, McDonald's and things like that, I actually went out there and did some work for a client um, and did some ads. And, you know, I entered them in the... Um, can advertising festival and and something strange happened where you know um, the gentleman I'd worked with at Saatchi was actually at the Can festival that year and he called me at three in the morning I was like in bed three or four a.m. in the morning and he goes g'day Simon I'm so sorry mate but like you awake and I'm like I am now you know sunshine thank you very much and he said guess what happened with that ad and he goes I go what ad I didn't even remember and he goes that ad and I was like and he goes yeah I just got a gold line of Can. And I was like, what? I was totally surprised. And then he goes, and guess what? And I said, what? And he said, he got another gold lion. You know, you just got two gold lions I can. So anyway, and it was my first year in advertising and my first job. And, and so I woke up that morning and, and the, the folks at DDB Needham were very gracious. They said, listen, would you like to go to the festival and accept the awards and all that good stuff? And I said, yes. So that day, got on a plane, flew to Paris, flew to Nice, went to Cannes. And then, you know, within 36 hours, I was standing there, you know, holding these two lines and a black tie and, and so on. And, um, and it was a very surreal experience in, it, in the advertising world, just kind of sort of jumping into it like that. And then, um, you know, went back, continued to work and had some success the next year, had a couple of bronzes at Cannes as well. And, you know, when you go there, you start to hear that there's all these markets out there in the world. And at the time, London was the sort of pinnacle of advertising and high-end copywriting and the true craft of advertising. And so I decided that I, ha I had to go to London. So that's, that's how it all started. Wow, mate. Incredible. So how long were you in London and how long until you ended up at Wyden and Kennedy in the US, which is, you know, probably the most prestigious agency in the world as far as directors go who want to work on great campaigns? You know, they have clients such as Nike and others. So how did you wind up over there? Well, I was in London and I couldn't find a job. They give you a hard time. You know what? Another bloody Aussie in London. That's the last thing we need. And a lot of appointments with these very credentialed, you know, true craftsmen in the industry. I'd hustle to get a call with them, hustle to get an appointment. I'd turn up and they, they weren't even there. Or they'd gone out to have a Boddington's or a whatever, a Guinness, you know. And, and I literally, my, my wife stayed at home and I wasn't going to see her until I got a job. So there's some motivation. My sister was living there over there at the time and I slept on her floor in a very sort of pretty dodgy area of London at the bottom of the black line. It was, it was, it, you had to kind of look over your shoulder as you're, you're walking to the tube stop and everything. And, um, but after five months, I got a job uh, at Saatchi and Saatchi there and I was doing some work. Then they offered me a full-time position at the same time that another agency, Ligus Delaney, offered me a job. And I had to get a job because you know, the H1 visa, you know, or the visa situation as a certain age, you've got to get a, a company to sponsor you. So I took the job at Ligus Delaney and I went there because at the time 
Tim Delaney was sort of the master of, of craft of copywriting and, and, and the true craft of advertising, all the long, long form Timberland ads and all the great era of Nike and Timberland and, and um, Harrods advertising. And this was the home of that. And there was five creative teams in there. And I worked in there for like a year and a half, which was a pretty long tenure because Tim likes to turn people over pretty quickly because he's a pretty hard taskmaster. And I did some decent work on Adidas. Um, and then, you know, I was fortunately, thanks to the work that I'd done, I was um, headhunted to go and have a meeting out at Wyden and Kennedy in Portland. And that's in the States. I'd never wanted to live in the States, never thought about it. London was always the sort of high end of advertising. And that's as far as I'd thought. And I thought Portland must have been on sort of the East Coast. Isn't that where that is, Portland in America? I don't know. Where is it? I've never, I've never really studied the map, whatever. And it turns out it's on the West Coast. Who'd have thunk it? So I go there and it's raining and it's kind of like a smaller town and whatever else, having just come from the diversity of London and all that sort of stuff. And I think I genuinely wasn't that enthusiastic to take the job, despite how fantastic the place is, just from a lifestyle point of view, my wife and we're about to have a first child. And in the end, I took the job and I worked as a writer on Nike for four years and wrote commercials for Lance Armstrong and Marion Jones and... Um, you know, worked in the Olympics and the World Cup. And it was such an incredible experience because of all the agencies I've worked in, you know, there's something truly special about that place. And they really elevate and celebrate creativity like no other environment I've ever been in. And everyone's extraordinarily talented. You know, there's one person from Germany, one person from Brazil, one person from other places around the world, and then a core team from the US. And you swap with your art director partners on each project. So you might have six projects at any one time, six different partners, and everyone's competing with each other on every brief. So if you're writing the Nike campaign for the Olympics, you're all lined up outside the office. You've had Pat Thai for 15 nights in a row and had no sleep. You've blown out soup to nuts the whole campaign. You go in and show it, and you're the one. You're winning for the day. You're the one, the top of the pops, you know, whatever. And then someone comes in, and they, like, crush you. And you're like, oh, my God. And this goes on and on and on and on, and that's on all the projects. So it really is about elevating creativity and so many wonderful people. And, and you know, it's funny. We – we didn't know anyone in America. We didn't have relatives nearby or anything. And, and we just had to find a new community and find a life again after London. And uh, it was hard. And I just, you know, my wife made it possible and we just hustled. And I had no sleep because we had a new young baby and couldn't afford sitters or anything like that. And we just hustled our way through. And um, it turned out well and had a lot of success and won a lot of awards on Nike. And it, and it was one of the most rewarding and unique experiences of my career for sure. Wow, incredible. Give me an insight as a director that's kind of, you know, the probably top of the wish list as a commercial director, which is how I've made my living predominantly over the last 30 years, directing high-end Nike commercials for Wyden Kennedy Portland. Just give me an insight into, say, okay, you've got your ad approved and you're going into production. Like what kind of budget, how many days shooting, what director's or, you know, director did you use on a couple of those key campaigns? And just, I mean, it sounds, you know, like you're living the dream, but the pressure is immense. Just give us an insight into that. Yeah, it's a funny old thing. Everyone acts cool, but here's the reality. I'd come from the high end of copywriting in London where, you know, Tiger Savage and all these other kind of luminaries in their day in London advertising were there and everyone's dressed in 
Prada and Gucci and they're reading their copy out loud to see how it feels in the mouth and it's like you might as well have a quill in your hand. And then you go to work in Portland and everyone's got moisture wicking shirts on with cargo pants and doing a 10-mile run at lunch. It couldn't be more chalk and cheese. The only constant was the rain. And so, you know, it didn't matter how you worked or when you worked or whatever. It just, the work comes first is the motto of Wyden and Kennedy. And it's very, very true. And, you know, the account service people, unlike a normal agency where they'd walk in with a brief and say, we've got to launch this basketball shoe and here's the demographic and this is the media buy and this is what we've got to do. They just walk in the door and go, um, here's a Tiger Woods ad or a Kobe ad or whatever. Do something cool and just drop it on your desk. And then, you know, your sphincter would close up and your heart would start beating harder. And you know that, you know, you're then competing and you've got, you know, small windows of time to do this. The other part I really want to credit is the clients. I mean, I've never had such a caliber of client, only once or twice ever since then. You know, at the time, Nike was being led globally by um, Rob DeFlorio, and he was just an extraordinary client for two reasons. One, his exceptional taste. He knew good work instinctively, like any good creative does. But at the same time, he trusted them and he was willing to fail. And having worked on Adidas for a couple of years and then Nike for four years, if you were to say, what's the biggest difference? It was really their appetite for risk, their capacity to fail. And you know, we, you know, you worked with Spike Jones, you worked with David Fincher, I shot commercials with Ring and Ledgewick and Rupert Sanders. And, and then, you know, we did the first campaign for Nike, um, Nike Lab. And they came along and said, we've got a five grand budget. What can you do with stock footage? Do you know what I mean? You know, the, the budget was just a creative constraint that defined a different brief. It wasn't a function. And the production, you, you know, back in the day, and this was the late 90s, You'd probably have, you know, a million to three million for a spot, depending on what it was. And, you know, you'd have the best directors and feature directors in the world and you could choose Martin Campbell, whoever, whoever you wanted, you could work with. And then all the post people, the mill and all these other companies in London and around the world you'd work with. And uh, whatever it took to get the best result was, was really the, the priority. And also the last thing I'd say is they're incredibly humble. You know, they're just not concerned about awards. You might think as the most awarded advertising agency in the world consistently over time. They care about the work and they care about the result it has. The, the whole idea of awards and putting statues everywhere and all that just was absolutely absent when it was a much more important priority in London. And that's a, another huge reason to respect them. So it was a great experience. And I, I learned from so many people. And it's also really tough. They tell you when something's not good or something's not great in no uncertain terms as they should. Very cool, mate. Thanks for sharing that. Did you watch any of the seasons or the various seasons of Mad Men, the TV series? You know what? Because like you in different ways, I've lived that life in many ways. I didn't want to because I didn't want to see a parody of it. And I also didn't want to see a lot of the misogyny that you know was typical of that period. And also when anything becomes popular, I revolt against it. Like if anyone has seen a movie like that is popular, I don't see it. I've never seen Star Wars. And I've never seen E.T., to give you two examples. I just don't want to know it. If everyone's talking about it, I don't, and I don't know what, that's just dysfunctional. That's probably my problem. But anyway, that's the truth. And, you know, it's been interesting. There are different versions of the ad man life, for sure. There are different versions out there. But when you're in a room 
when you're sitting at a table with Spike Jones and these top, you know, post-production people and great creative people, and you're just riffing and, you know, and the quality of ideas and thinking is so elevated, it just makes everything you do worthwhile. It makes your life fulfilled. It makes the sweat equity you put in worthwhile. And I was privileged enough to be in that company for a while. Yeah, mate. Awesome. So obviously, as we can hear, you've been really successful as a, as a copywriter, as a creative director at some of the top agencies. Did you ever get sacked? Give us an insight. Oh, us absolutely. Some- <laughs> absolutely. Are you crazy? Tim Delaney fired me um, like he, you know, he fired so many others. That's what I meant. The shelf life is pretty short. Um, I think I got fired from Mojo back in the day um, after doing a little bit of work for them. I mean, you know, there's a lot of reasons you've got to move on, but I think so- all of us sometimes feel like that someone's closing a door, but having schlepped my butt all around the world now and tried lots of different things, they are opening another door. And if for any reason your presence in that capacity at that company is not the right answer at that time, the reasons don't matter. It's just another opportunity to move on. So, uh, yep, definitely got fired and, um, you know, Somehow after a while, if you just keep leaping off the cliff and taking risks, you almost miss the adrenaline of that. Whether you got fired or whether you're going to another country or you're, you know, you're swimming out of your depth, after a while you kind of get addicted to that, uh, that chemical high of really having to sink or swim. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. So I know you're a pretty healthy guy, um, the antithesis to the madman kind of, um, you know, stereotype, creative director stereotype. What do you do to unwind and handle the pressure of those big jobs? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Back in the day, I would have these like 16-ounce granita lattes that had more sugar than any human body should consume. So I think I was so hyped up on the caffeine and the sugar, I was probably about to explode. But, um, you know, the only reason I found exercise and sport pretty um, therapeutic all the way through, I think one of the reasons London was a bit tough was, you know, the rain and the weather. I grew up in the water in Sydney and it's part of who I am. You know, I'm a fish, I'm a Pisces, whatever, you know, and I just need the water. I need the blue in my eyes. It's what keeps me sane. And then after four more years in Portland, that's like six or eight years of rain. And and my wife who has an Egyptian background and grew up in Australia and went to like Hornsby Girls High as a good, great Sydney girl, you know, she said, listen, I've just had nine years of rain and I've got two young kids. I'm going to LA. Feel free to join me. And we thought, you know, LA, it's one stop to Sydney. It's got the sun. It's got the beaches. And um, so I took my last staff job down in LA, which is why we ended up here. And I, I was worldwide creative director for Motorola um, at Ogilvy. And we launched the Razor phone and, and various other things. And um, it was a big, big kind of, again, slap in the head to go from a creative-led agency where, you know, the work came first to really running a global account and being in charge of EMEA, North America, South America, Europe, and China, and being on three time zones and then really having to manage all these different markets and regions at the same time in a, in a wide product portfolio. So again, it was a big gulp of what the hell am I doing? But um, that's what brought us to LA. Gotcha. So you're in LA, you're working on this you know, global prestigious account. How do you then become the social, um, you know, corporate responsibility warrior that you did become and write that book? Tell us about that time period. Yeah, I would love to suggest to anyone listening to this that this was planned and it was meant to work out. It was one big, what's that technical term, shite show? It was just 
it was just putting it out there and just seeing if there was any ground underneath. And again, the same thing happened here. After two or three years as as worldwide creative director um, with a partner called Philip Squire with Motorola, you're always on a plane. You're always around the world. You're always on multiple time zones. You've got no life of your own. And I had young kids and I wasn't getting enough time with them. So I thought, look, this isn't working out for me. So I went freelance and for five years, I, I was kind of like the cleaner from Pulp Fiction. I was the, like, you know, I'd do this breathless brand triage where Fortune 500 companies in the States would want to solve with a campaign or an agency would want to solve. And, you know, you get three days, three weeks, six weeks, whatever it might be. And, you know, I was booked all year round and I did that for five or six years, but something really weird happened, Lee. And I don't know if other guys and ladies can relate to this, but, you know, you're a young parent. You're working really hard. You're trying to get ahead a in life. You know, you're trying to pay some school fees. You've got no safety net. There's no safety net. You just got to do hard yakka yourself. And um, I, I found myself after six years of freelance really being unhappy. I, I found myself walking around my house in LA going, I'm doing all this freelance work and I'm making a go of it, but I'm, I'm not happy and I don't know why. And maybe I tried all these different versions of success, but they didn't actually align with who I was. I, that's what I kind of feel in hindsight. But something then very personal happened. I, I woke up one day in my house in LA here and I walked out to the kitchen and there was an answering machine on the counter, the white tile counter, which shows you how long ago it was. And there was five messages. And the first message was from my mum yelling down the phone, Simon, wake up. Please, Simon, wake up. Another message, Simon, really, honey, wake up. And she's yelling down the phone because she's calling from Sydney and I'm living in LA and she's trying to reach me in my bedroom. And the answering machine is in the kitchen. Another call from my mum, quite distraught at this point. And then the fourth call was from my sister and she's yelling down the phone, Simon, you wake up. She's, she's clearly upset. And then the final message from my mum said, Simon, dad died. Call us when you wake up. And it was my dad who'd been very ill for a long time and who I hadn't seen for five years was calling to say goodbye. And because of the time difference, I didn't get those messages. And I have to say, you know, it's one thing to go through that experience outright, but to have that emotional journey collapsed into like 15 seconds through answering machine messages because they're one after another kind of took the wind out of me because I hadn't seen him for a long time and I've been running around the world living all these versions of success that weren't making me happy. And I was professionally destabilized because I wasn't feeling challenged anymore. And I suddenly got personally very kind of at odds. And I got to say, Lee, you know, for the first time in my bloody life where you're always trying to, I don't know, be successful or get somewhere or do something, for the first time in my life, I got out of my own way. And for the next three weeks, I was just so at sea. It's like when you've been, you know, you've been, you're body surfing or you're surfing and your big wave is broken and, and you're under the water and it's big churn and you're kicking out, but you don't know which way's up. You know, I was just completely lost and disorientated. And instead of retreating to my head to safety and writing lists and thinking my way through it, I just kind of threw my hands up and took my hands off the wheel and said, I, I'm lost. And it so happened at that time that I happened to read the speech that Bill Gates gave at the World Economic Forum in Davos, and then again later on the, on the floor of the General Assembly of the UN. It was called his Creative Capitalism Speech, where he said, the global meltdown has just happened in 2007, 2008, you know, and 
Wall Street to Main Street to the Gulf States to, to Iceland to all around the world come unstuck. And he said the private sector needs to play a bigger role in social change. Government and philanthropy can't do it on their own. And I remember reading it and going, yeah, I get that. I get that. And, you know, President Obama was being elected at the time and there was a lot of optimism in the air. And, uh, and I kind of, he called it his creative capitalism speech and it got in my head, Lee, it got in my head. It was like, it's like a damn brief. He called it creative. God damn it. It's a, it's a brief. And I tried to walk away from it. And then after about a week, I told my wife, I said, um, I want to answer Bill Gates' challenge. I want to write a book. And I'd never talked about a book in my life before. I'd never wanted to be an author. I didn't know an author. I don't know agents. I'm in LA. I'm just an ad guy doing whatever ad guys do. And I was pretty kind of like at sea at that time. And so I spent the next three years um, after freelance work, my family would finish watching, you know, John Stewart or something late at night. And then from 10.30 till 2 a.m. And on weekends, I'd write this book. And after three years we first came out um, was we first how brands and consumers use social media to build a better world, and it launched in June of 2011. And you know, it was a new, double New York Times bestseller, and it was voted best marketing book of the year. And and that that allowed me to change course. Incredible, mate! I've actually listened to the book over the last week, the audio book. And oh, thank uh, you. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was back in the day, man. Facebook was this new up-and-coming company. There was no Instagram. There was no TikTok. There was no Snapchat. People weren't – Arab Spring was just happening. It was so different back then. But um, there's one thing about the launch of the book that I do want to share, actually, because I want to I give credit, credit where it's due. Because these things sound like they're good achievements, but they never happen without somebody else. We're, we're so much more effective and we're so much stronger than we do things together. And I, I just want to explain why. You know, three weeks before the book came out, I was absolutely knackered, Lee, knackered. I was tired from writing and editing and finishing it and I didn't have any money to kind of promote it and all that sort of stuff. So I was pretty kind of like, oh my God, what have I done? I've spent all this time writing this book and it's just going to be a piece of crap that gets out there and is a waste of time. And so I asked myself, what am I trying to do here? What am I trying to do? And at the end of the day, I thought, I'm trying to put new words in the mouth of business. Why? Because language frames behavior. The same way we understand waving your hand is an action waving your hand. If you reframe language, you can reframe behavior. So someone recommended I reach out to a, a slam poet. He's the number one slam poet in the US called Seku Andrews again, who was just sort of starting to get his career at the time and, and public exposure. And I told him about what I'm doing. Cole called him on the phone, no idea, and told him what I'm trying to do in terms of this book. And he said, he paused for a long time and he said, I'm in. And then I called up an animation company that I'd worked with and said, this is what I want to do. And they said, we'll help you. And that animation company was called Troika Design. And then I called up a music house that I knew and that I'd worked with, um, called Machine Head, and they said that support us as well. And so over the next 19 days, we put together an animated video to launch the book. And I was asked to do a TEDx talk at that time. And it was the third TEDx ever. So TEDx's were very, very new. TED, TED Talks were still building. And um, you know, to my absolute horror, I was asked to speak on the stage, the same stage that Steve Jobs does all his iPhone launches up in San Francisco, the Yerba Center. So I've never done a public speech before. I've just been an ad guy. I'm exhausted, finished writing this book, and they say, go and do this. So this video, I hustled with this team to get it together. 
And I walk out on stage about to crap myself, like literally, like pathologically just apoplectic, like terrified. And the woman who spoke before me was paralyzed from the neck down. She was an Australian skier who had a skiing accident named Heather. And Boston Robotics, I think it was, built her an exoskeleton. And she literally walked for the first time on stage. And the place is in tears. Everybody is freaking out. They're crying. They're on their feet. But I'm in the wings going, holy crap, how am I going to follow Lazarus? I was terrified. And I was just about to walk out and Heather walked past and said, good luck, Simon. And I was like, thanks for just like totally kneecapping me. And I was about to walk out and this guy in all black walks out of the Yerba Center, one of the tech guys with the headset and everything. He goes, are you Simon? And I'm like, yeah, you know, no shit, Sherlock. I'm Simon. I'm about to go out. I'm speaking. And he said, you see the confidence monitors out there? Well, they've been intermittent, the signal all day, and, and there's been a lot of snow. So we've turned them off. Good luck. Like, 20 seconds before I walk out for my first public speech, and if anyone ever goes and looks up Simon Mannering, TEDx San Francisco, you will see me looking over my shoulder the whole time because I had no idea what slide or anything I was on, and I had to wing the whole thing. And, you know, when you've only got 17 minutes for a TED talk, so in the end, you know, it's, it's pretty important. So in the end, I gave the last three minutes of my TED talk to that animated video that those colleagues had made possible. And it received over 40,000 views within 24 hours, which was a lot of views back in the early days of YouTube back in 2011. And it, it was on the New York Times bestseller list the following Tuesday. Holy shit, mate. You've got big balls. That's all I can say. Mate, my, my balls, I think they arrive about a minute in front of me because I look back at those things I did and I think you are insane. I, you know, my wife was a stay-at-home mom. I had two kids. You know, I was the only income and I left to be an author. And it was just so stupid, man. I cannot tell you. It was the dumbest thing. But, you know, in the end, it worked out. But again, no planning, no strategy, just happenstance. And, and the heartfelt support of people who had nothing to gain. They actually just showed up because they believed in, you know, what you're trying to articulate. And I tell you, that's the goal. That's why you've got to show up for other people because when you do, amazing things are possible, you know? Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Did you have any Jerry Maguire type moments? Because I know the, you know, like where he wrote the mission statement and then he went and shared it at the office and then they all laughed at him and he lost his job and, you know, that was that. He eventually made his way back because this book, it's, it's a, it's a brave book. It's optimistic. It's you seeing, you know, social media at that time as something that can change the world for the better. I'd say in some ways it has. At the moment, I'm not so sure right now, but certainly back at that time and for the next sort of five years, I think it did create a, a lot of good. But um, just tell us about, obviously, there's the TEDx one, but was there another one where you just thought, oh, yeah. my God. Absolutely. I mean, very strange things happened. I mean, I, I didn't really want to live in the States. I'd never planned it. But what I've discovered about America being here for 20 years now is when the machine kicks in, you're the product. And so within six weeks of, um, you know, the book being a success, I was invited to the White House and, and went to the East Wing and, 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 you know, collaborated with them about certain things that were going on with President Obama right now. Then I, I went to the State Department. I went to the House of Commons in London. And I spoke at Facebook. I spoke at Google. And, 
you know, actually, I spoke at the RSC, the RSA, the Royal Society of Arts in London, and people are calling you a socialist because you want to, you know, change the way things are, and and people give you a hard time, and because you, you put your neck out there. But the truth was, I just was an arch capitalist who thought, shouldn't we share it a little bit more evenly because of what happened in 2007, 2008 just wasn't right. You know, you can't have all these people just losing their homes and their healthcare and their hopes simply because some investment bankers kind of want to line their pockets. So um, a lot of pushback back at the time and people would sort of ruffle my hair and say, oh, that's great, man. Wouldn't it be great if a world like that can exist? Never going to happen. Never going to happen. On your way. And here we are 10 years later, and, and it was interesting. The reason the book, I think, was voted Best Marketing Book of the Year by Strategy and Business, they said this is uh, one of those rare marketing books that is as visionary as it is prescient in the sense that it laid out a roadmap for the role that social media could play, which to some degree, as you say, did play out, but also didn't play out because I think advertising dollars and privacy issues and politicization and all those sorts of things have caused a lot of problems. Um, so, you know, but it allowed me to launch the company, We First, that I have to try and do the work. I mean, the book was just a bit of a roadmap, but I wanted to do the work to help business become a force for good. And it was just a calling card. But, you know, I couldn't buy a lunch to talk about this stuff 10 years ago. And now we're working with a lot of the top purpose leaders and major corporations and global corporations around the world. And again, you just got to hold your own hand and just kind of, if you believe in something, keep going. And, you know, if you're wrong, you're wrong. If you're right, well, then you'll be on the right side of history. And, and fortunately, business has become more purposeful ever since. Yeah, I think a lot of good has come out of it, mate. And I think you were right on a lot of the stuff there. Right now, particularly in 2020, watching um, what's happening, I can't help but feel the handful of you know social media giants. It's sort of gone back to where it was with the giant networks you know, 20 years ago or whatever. It's just a handful of people with a lot of control and they're censoring anything that goes against their narrative that suits their vested interests. So I'm sort of worried about that even though there's still great opportunities and um, there's a lot of pluses out of what's happened there. What's your feeling about where it's at right now? I've got mixed feelings. I mean, it's pretty crazy living in Los Angeles under this current administration because there's a lot of things going on that I don't agree with and, you know, enough said. But, you know, I, I really saw with Arab Spring at the time and more this ability to create dialogue with institutions and brands between consumers and citizens would really force them to listen more, force the brands and the institutions to listen. To what end? To improve people's lives. As it turned out, I think a lot of positives came out of it because social media effectively rewove the social fabric around the world. It reconnected people independent of time or geography and really gave us a sense that we're part of one human family. At the same time, the power of the media, you know, whether it's advertising dollars, whether it's mining people for data, whether it's selling, you know, people's data has just been intoxicating for a lot of these platforms. And I think that betrayed the promise and a lot of the stated claims that they made at the outset. And now we find ourselves in these echo chambers where depending on the algorithm and what we shared about ourselves, they regurgitate back to you content that reinforces that. So we're all disappearing down our own wormholes and we end up being more polarized than ever. And I can't tell you how visceral that feeling is here in the US. It's so disheartening because, you know, in the previous administration, the country felt very united, you know, and there were those who didn't agree with President Obama and so on, but the presumption of leadership was we're in this together, nonpartisan, 
We're Americans or we're one human family. There's a much more divisive narrative going on here now, which doesn't serve anybody. And I think that's compounded by social media. And it doesn't just disappoint me. You know, it breaks my heart because it's translating to people losing their lives, violence against people, reinforcing racism and so on. And, you know, we went through earlier this year all the riots living here in LA around Black Lives Matter. And, you know, I grew up in Sydney and here's what it was like. It was like going to Chatswood and Hornsby and North Sydney and Edgecliffe and downtown Sydney and everything's on fire and there's military police everywhere and there's the army everywhere and, and over half the stores are boarded up. And there are thousands and thousands of people literally you know, protesting in the streets, tragically some looters and so on. But to see the consequences of that and to live in the midst of it is, 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 is a very real experience. So long answer, but I think social media has betrayed a lot of its promise, but there's still a lot of good that can be done. Gotcha, mate. Yep. Thanks for that. Let's go back to business. Uh, I mean, 2020, I'm almost, uh, you know, right now with what's happening with COVID, I'm almost not going there every day. The news is so intense and the sort of fear-mongering we're getting from so many quarters is so intense. I don't even want to kind of engage with it today because tomorrow is another day and it's just rolling out and I almost just like want to get through <laughs> 2020 at this point and, right. and clock 2020 over. is going to be a curse word. Like, how was your day, 2020? <laughs> yeah, you know, right. It's going to be a curse word soon. No one's going to want 2020 vision. They're going to like go, right. I want glasses. Give me glasses. Right, <laughs> right. Um, so, um, so, yeah, I don't want to get bogged down in that. I'd rather just sort of look at the positives we can find out of this. So, right now, what you're doing predominantly is helping businesses and people like realign their purpose and strategize as how they're going to pivot what they can do, how they can, yes, be corporately responsible, but still give people jobs, still be productive, all of that. So give us an insight into how you go into a business or an individual if they call you and say, hey, Simon, we want you to help us with a, a business strategy to, um, to come out of this hole. We've lost our purpose or we've lost our income, whatever. Just give us an example, whether it's a person or a business, what you do, what you say to them when you go in and how you help them in a short period of time with those problems. Yeah, and just to set some context, we work with like venture-backed or private equity-backed startups. We work with purpose leaders like Tom's and Timberland and Virgin Unite and Seventh Generation. We also work with large corporations like Sony Pictures and, and VSP Global and, and Avery Dennison, big B2B and big B2C companies. So they're all very different animals, but I just, I'm going to respond in broad terms. The time in which business can just lead with its profit and profit for profit's sake is over. Not because I say so, but because thanks to social media, smartphones, and, and the web, everybody, all stakeholders, employees, investors, and consumers are acutely aware of the challenges we face. Climate crisis, loss of biodiversity, plastics in the ocean, ocean acidification, all of these things that are really compromise our lives. It's not political. It's just the reality of the world in which we live. Then... COVID came along and then Black Lives Matter came along. And all of this has elevated the expectation on business to play a meaningful role in the world, to actually transcend their product services or category to shape culture. So you see it with Airbnb when they, you know, um, give free accommodation to Australian bushfire victims or Syrian refugees. You know, you see it when Patagonia says they're going to sue the president. So what we, what we do is we help companies define 
integrate and activate their purpose. Because it's hard for a lot of companies to see, whatever size they are, a hundred-year-old company or a two-year-old company, because it's hard to read the label from inside the jar. You know, you're in the swim of your business every day and you can't see how you should be perceived outside yourself. You can't articulate that. And so typically we will define what their purpose is and we have a specific methodology for that. So that's the strategy piece, what to say and how to say it. And then we move on to the culture building piece because if it's not true inside the organization, then you're going to get called out by your employees, by the marketplace, whatever. So we do a lot of strategy or planning work, training and tools inside a company, whether there's five people or we, we rolled out purpose for VF Corporation, a large apparel company that has 71,000 people. And then thirdly, so strategy, culture building, then we do the impact storytelling, which is if you're doing good work, how do you share that in a way that's not self-serving and that will inspire everyone to work with you? And so we like to say that you've got to be the chief celebrant, not celebrity of your stakeholder community. You've got to take everyone with you. So if you were to say to me, what's the one thing that companies of all sizes come to you for in the US and around the world? It's to help them become a movement. You know, whether you look at the climate movements or women's march, or whether you look at the, the Black Lives Matter movements, consumers and citizens are self-possessed. They're equipped with smartphones that allow them to organize and coordinate themselves in new ways. And if brands really want to play a meaningful role, they need to build movements or collaborate around movements themselves. Why? Because it makes them relevant. Why? Because it makes them meaningful. Why? Because it distinguishes them from their competitors and it allows employees to want to work with them investors to want to invest in them and consumers to want to buy their stuff. So that's what we do. We really help purpose-led brands scale their growth and impact by becoming movements. Mate, you're on fire. Mate, no, I'm not on fire. It's just what it's all we do every day. You know, it's very easy to be an expert at the only thing you do. I am so damn useless in the rest of my life. My wife controls all the AV at home. She deal, you know, she can repair something and fix something in the garage far better than I can. I'm like this really finite specialist who is absolutely chronically useless at everything else in life. So, enough said. I think you're very humble, but I've got the point. Mate, it's unbelievable. I still keep getting pictures of that bloke in the nightclub set back in the late 80s. And I'm like, look at this dude. He's, he's a top 50 keynote speaker in the world. And um, honestly, I love where you're coming from. Well, I think, you know, what I did when I was a speaker, for the first three years, I watched all the other speakers, which most speakers don't do. I went and watched them and tried to learn from them. And if I really liked someone, I went and asked them, teach me something. And I actually did that with Sir Ken Robinson, the great educator who just passed away in the last couple of days. And I had dinner with his wife and he, he gave me some great insights, which I can share if we have time. But, you know, I will share my insight looking back. I've spent my whole life schlepping my butt around the world, living out different versions of success, only to find that the, the journey I had to take was to find alignment between who I am and what I do on a daily basis. It's not about getting success as defined by somebody else. It's kind of like this journey to know what you care about. So I tried being the cool ad guy or the, the big cheese who ran global accounts. That wasn't me. I'm a family guy who's values-based that really empathetically cares about other people. And when I found that alignment through starting my company, WeFirst, between who I am and what I do, 
all of that other stuff dropped away. I didn't care about what anyone else is doing. I didn't worry about how much money anyone else is making because I was just living my truth. And that makes you a better speaker. It makes you a better husband, parent, father, man, all of those different things. And so I look back and say, the most important part of the journey is to really kind of get clear about who you are and to find something that's going to allow you to express that authentically. And then not surprisingly, you'll unlock all this disproportionate success because you're that much better equipped to do that because that's who you are. And the last thing I'll share about this, and I've learned this from many great people. I, I mentioned Sir Ken Robertson, but I got to speak before President Clinton at various events. And I, I, and I got to, um, I went to Necker Island and taught some workshops with Sir Richard Branson and others. And you, I'm privileged enough to get in the company of some of these real muckety mucks who, who've, who've really lived a life and, and who can share some advice. And what I've taken away from them all is this. I used to think that fulfillment was an outside-in job. If I win the shiny statue at the Cannes Advertising Festival, or if I get that job, or if I work at this place, then I'm going to feel whole. I'm going to feel good. That's what makes me successful. But what I've learned from all of these kind of amazing people that have lived these extraordinary lives is that it's an inside-out job. You don't get fulfilled by others, by what they say or give you, Fulfillment is an inside-out job where you fill yourself up by what you give to others. So the more you get off yourself and onto others and really commit your life to one of service, the more you'll find the fulfillment you crave in the most selfish sense or healthy self-interest sense. And so I've, I've really sort of run a lot of miles to try and work out what it's all about. And it's not about wealth. It is about well-being. And, and, and it is about finding that fulfillment that gives your time meaning and significance. And it comes from being of service and seeking fulfillment from the inside out by what you give to others. And that's what I've taken away. Mate, that's beautiful. Thanks for sharing. And, and I couldn't agree more. It's an inflow and outflow thing, isn't it? If it's all about me, inflow, 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 that's not the best approach. Helping others, it sounds corny, but that's the truth. You can't lose if you help others. It's not corny. It's profound. You know, as Steve Jobs said, simple is hard. And when you get to those simple truths, everything changes. And that's why my company is called We First, because it's a, an antidote to the me first mentality I saw happen in 2008. And so, you know, I've committed my life to trying to be of service, but also inspiring the biggest levers we can pull to help others, which is business, these corporations, to help them be of service to as many people as possible, and actually to change the motives to repurpose business at large so that we can solve for some of these issues, because there's no way we're going to meet these challenges we face with equal force and in the timeline we need if we're all trying to do it piecemeal. We need to work together in new ways. And I'm actually, I'm actually writing a new book about that right now, like what the future of leadership looks like. So, you know, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. Look forward to it, mate. Tell me, we've come full circle to podcasts. So, I know you have your own podcast going and that's a good thing. It's a great platform. I'm enjoying doing it and I'd listen to a couple of your podcasts and, and they're fantastic. So, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, we're lucky enough to get access to the CEOs and C-suite of all these small, big, medium companies. And I thought, if we get that and we benefit from that, why can't we share that with more people? So the podcast is called Lead With We and it's on Apple, Google and Spotify. And you can just go to leadwithwepodcast.com, leadwithwepodcast.com and just have a listen, subscribe, rate and review, do all of those things. But it's there to, to give you access to the insights, the real world actions companies are taking to drive purposeful profit. So that's 
leadwithwe.com and it's on it's on apple cool yeah it's the same for me mate the podcast came about from this year of um yeah 2020 it's turned everything upside down i was kind of like okay i've got to do something new things may not go back to the way they were and i just thought god i've been so fortunate to meet so many incredible people over the years and learn so much from them i'd love to be able to talk to some of these people and share the conversations that i've had with them with others i mean literally that was the kernel that it started from and then i'm like oh okay well yeah i know simon i, I know my wife i can interview her so she can do an episode and then Mate, I- i'm glad you started the podcast this is our first beer together in freaking 30 years i mean is that what it takes is that what it takes pick up the phone simon pick up the phone lee i mean we all see each other on social media and we're like yeah yeah they're great but leah i mean it is it's it's, it's amazing and i think uh we could all spend our lives trying to learn these lessons ourselves for the first time the hard way or we can you know benefit from the shared wisdom of everybody out there so i'm trying to provide that business wisdom and and i, I love what the, the insights that you're providing into all the journeys that people have run the crazy things that Aussies get up to when no one tells them to stop. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Mate, that's a good point to wrap it up. What a treat. Lovely to hang out with you for an hour and thanks for sharing your wisdom and thanks for the fine work. Yeah, thank you. And um, I got to tell you, as someone who's been away from Australia for 25 years, I freaking miss it, man. I miss it. I, you know, never take a day in Australia for granted. And the way you, everyone treats each other and the way we're all mates to each other and, and we're, you know, I, it, it's special. And um, it's taken a long journey for me to appreciate just how special that is. So I guess I'm sending a big shout out of love to everybody there. And I'd love to have a great latte and dive in the ocean if I could. And if anyone can, please do it for me. You'd make my day. All right, mate. I will. Good on you. Have a good day. Cheers, Simon. Thanks, Lee. See ya. Thanks for joining me for this week's conversation. It's hard not to be impressed by Simon's articulate take on things, isn't it? Definitely a creative powerhouse with the gift of the gab, but importantly, he's got the guts and work ethic to follow through on his ideas. His ability to help brands balance that tricky terrain between being profitable and socially responsible has become increasingly important in today's business world. As challenging as the problems are that we're currently facing on this planet, when I chat with Simon, I can't help but think we have the ability to solve these problems We just need to be open enough to genuinely finding solutions and back up creative thinkers and entrepreneurs in this quest. So let's keep learning, people. If you want to know more about Simon, check out his website, simonmannering.com. The link is in the show notes. And his podcast is called Lead With We. It's great and it's on all the usual platforms. If you don't want to miss an episode, then subscribe or follow on your platform And, you know, I'd love ratings and reviews. Just go for it. And if you want to contact me, my email is in the show notes as well. Love to hear your thoughts or any bright ideas on future guests. Until then, have a great week and live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Bryn MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production.